0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together.
1: We are going to move into our study, the final spring lunch study of the series of I Am. Today is going to be I Am the Way. The truth and the life. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, so if you're using your phone, you can switch to that translation, ESV. If you don't have a handout, they're over here, and the scripture is on the handout itself as well as the, uh, the blanks that you'll need for today's study. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is going to be starting in John 14, 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. Let us read together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I ask that you pray for me today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to gather around a meal and for an opportunity to be fed by your word. Pray that you bless us, that you forgive us, that you illumine our hearts and minds. That you will use your sword to separate anything of us that is not of you. That you will make us more like Christ and less like us. Forgive us where we fail you. Bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there are many ways to go about this. And if you look at any of the sermons online for I Am the Way, the Truth, and the Life, there's dozens upon dozens upon dozens, many of which are hours in length. Uh, we won't spend that much time. So there's many approaches, but I think the best way to go about this is verse by verse. So that way we can keep the main things, the main things, to get the big picture so we don't lose the forest through the trees. So let us begin in verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the first half of verse 14.1 is a negative Imperative. This is what is called a negative imperative. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, an imperative is two-sided. Typically, you have the negative and the positive moving away from something and towards something. And this is flowing from what Jesus is informing the 11 disciples, that he will be leaving and that they cannot follow him. Jesus is leaving and they cannot follow, and this causes them some anxiety. And we see this happening in thirty-six through thirty-eight. This says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus is leaving. Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And I'm sure some of the anxiety is stemming from Peter's denial of Christ that will be coming up, but primarily in the fact that Christ is leaving the disciples and that the disciples cannot follow him there. So what Jesus is correcting in the disciples is what we could call unholy fear. We could call this unholy fear. To not be troubled. Fear not. Do not let your hearts Be troubled. That's the negative side. What we are to move away from, what the disciples are to move away from, is unholy fear. But when you move away from something, you automatically move towards something. And so the second half of the master's command is a positive imperative. A positive imperative believe also in me. So you have one half, one side of the coin is negative, the other side of the coin is positive. So it is to move away from unholy fear and to believe in Christ. So the proper response to unholy fear is active belief, and active belief in the Son of God specifically. So the command of Christ to His disciples at this point is to move away from unholy fear towards active belief, and that belief is in the Son of God. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. That's 1B. Believe in God, yes, believe also in me. In some ways, 1B serves as a small foreshadow of what's coming in verse 6, a sort of a tiny equation, because look at the words that are separated by the semicolon. Believe, believe, in, in, God, me, the Son. So it is a a small foreshadow of what's coming up in verse 6 of Jesus equating himself with God. So, this is how we, we start looking at the way, the truth, and the life to move away from unholy fear into active belief into the Son. And the reason we can do this is found in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, the reason the disciples can believe in Christ and not lose heart is that Christ is leaving for a purpose. Christ is leaving for a purpose, so Christ is not leaving for leaving's sake, for leaving's sake, if you would. He is going for a purpose, and this purpose is found in the destination of the way this verse starts, the Father's house. The Father's house simply refers to the presence of God, the presence of God. In my Father's house are many rooms, and this simply refers to the presence of God A lot of times people can look a little too much into this, that there might be a little more there than that is actually there. And so the King James Version translation of this is slightly unfortunate for today's reader because it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. And at that time, that would have communicated correctly, but not for today because it has an idea of a mansion. And some outflow of that is that you get your own mansion in heaven. You're secluded from everybody else. You do good. You get prosperity because it's a mansion, right? Well, but the King James comes out of the Tyndale uh, tradition, Out of the Latin Vulgate, which is mansiones, which accurately would have been portrayed as an apartment or a flat. A very large building with lots of living quarters in it. So it is together living in these rooms in the presence of God. In the presence of God. So the purpose is for Christ to leave to this destination. And the purpose is found in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. So the purpose that Christ is leaving is to what? Prepare a place for them. So he is pulling them away from unholy fear to active belief in the Son of God for a purpose rooted in the destination of the Father's presence to prepare a place for the disciples to prepare a place for the disciples to go there. And Jesus is the one taking them to this place that he has prepared. And there are three primary views of what is specifically meant by I will come again. The second half of verse 3. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. The first possibility that this could be referring to is Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Christ's post-resurrection appearances. So the train of thought is this. Christ is specifically uh, speaking to the disciples. He tells them he is going away to prepare, which would be prepared to get them into the presence of God, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's how he accomplishes the divine work. And then I will come to you again. So the thought goes that he will come after he has risen to the disciples, which he did, post-resurrection, walking through walls, appearing to prove that he is the Son of God of who he says to be. So that's one thought, Christ's post-resurrection appearances. The second one that it could be is God returning to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's, that's another option. So the train of thought goes like this, God is, Jesus is God. And God is talking to the disciples. God has come down to earth talking to the disciples, saying He will leave, but He's going to come back to them. And He accomplishes this after death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and comes back to the disciples as the person of the Holy Spirit descending upon them in Pentecost. So that's option number two, if you will. The third option, and what I think is the most natural reading of the text, this is where I would fall in, is Christ's final return. Christ's final return at the end of the age. So the second advent, the inauguration of the age to come. I think this is the most natural reading of this text simply because Christ is the one talking, I will come again and take you to myself. Where is Christ now? He's in the presence of God. That where I am, where he is, is in the presence of God and taking the disciples and by extension, the elect, the the church, the followers of Christ so you can do more research on those different options there's actually more options than that but those are the three big ones and I think most people rightly fall on that third option in verse 3 which of course leads us in 4 and you know the place that he's preparing and you know the way to where I'm going you know the way to where I'm going and Jesus closes his initial comment with a true statement that the disciples know the way The disciples know the way. And of course with us, we have a nice close canon. We have a full Bible. We know the story in and out for the most part. We know that they know because they know Christ. We know that the disciples know this because they know Christ. So therefore Jesus' statement is of course a truth statement. We know that they know this because they do know Christ. But not everything is computing with the disciples at this point. Because Thomas in verse 5 says, Thomas said to them, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Thomas's question indicates that he was thinking too earthly or too literal about what Christ was talking about to this point. So too earthly or too literal at this point. And the modern Christian mind typically does the same thing. We have a problem with this where we take things to be literal, which doesn't necessarily mean accurate so when we interpret scripture we interpret it three ways our first step is to interpret it literally God says what God says and we take it at face value of what that is we also interpret scripture contextually these would have been good blanks but they're not on there contextually meaning by the context of the surrounding words and paragraphs it may inform us that maybe the literal translation is probably not the best such as when Jesus says I am the door or I'm the vine. He doesn't literally mean that he is a, you know, a plant or a piece of mahogany. He's a human talking, and so he's flesh and blood. So we know that contextually, this is probably not a literal door. This is not a, he's not a piece of mahogany sitting in front of people. The third way we interpret scripture is what we would call progressively. progressively. That's a four-letter word, isn't it, nowadays? Progressively. Progressive. Progressively is typically a four-letter word in today's culture. But what we mean by that is that something has happened down the pipe that informs us that our literal and contextual translation was not correct. Such as when Jesus says the temple will be torn down and in three days it will be raised again. Everybody's thinking that it's a literal, it's not going to happen that way. But we later find out through time that that was speaking of something different, mainly his body. So that is what we would call a progressive interpretation of Scripture. And really, this is an example of a progressive interpretation. Thomas is looking at the house this way. He thinks it's, it's going to be a real house with a real road, and Jesus is going to this physical house, a literal house, and Jesus corrects him. He says, no, 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 no. So unwittingly, the mundane question by Thomas led to one of the most far-reaching and provocative statements ever made by Jesus. And we see that in verse 6. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus corrects Thomas in his too literal thinking and says, No, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And this profound answer opens with Christ identifying himself as the great I am. The great I am. Ego. Amy. Ego and Amy separately mean I am. So in a way, Jesus is saying, I am, I am. And of course, it's not a stutter. It's, it's a direct use of the revealed name of God in Exodus 3.14, the burning bush. Exodus 3.14, God reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses. He says, I am that I am. And this is a profound name that God reveals himself by. Without trying to sound too ghetto, it's it's the isness of god i is that i is <laughs> that sounds ghetto to us but it translates well as i am that i am i am being an essence i am existence in and of itself i have existed i do exist i will always exist and i necessarily exist eternally forever and of course we know this today it's it's laughable with today's atheists we know without a shadow of a doubt, that either the universe is eternal, or there is something at the beginning of the universe that is eternal, something or someone that caused the universe, and that someone has to be self-existent, necessarily existent, otherwise it wouldn't exist, right? So this is what we're looking for, and the Greeks discovered this as well, but they only discovered it so much after God had already revealed this to Moses in the burning bush and Christ himself here in the I am. So Jesus is drawing on the I am that I am. I I exist eternally. I am the I am. And of course the Jews know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He uses it elsewhere and they try to stone him. He uses it, finishes, I am, that's why they crucified him. So it's laughable when the religion of Islam says that Jesus never claims to be God. You only have to ask, why did they crucify Jesus? He was a pretty good guy, wasn't he? It's because he claimed to be God. And this is profound because it's either insane or it's true. C.S. Lewis got it right. It is either insanity or it is truth. There really is no middle ground between that because it would be blaspheming to say that I am God or Jesus is correct. Of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they all said that he was insane, and the resurrection proves that he was correct. So, flowing from this eternal existence, this great I am, is the description of an unseparated triad. An unseparated triad, way, truth, and life. And I call this triad unseparated because some scholars think that the truth and the life are subservient to the way because they rooted in Thomas's question that these descriptions are rooted in Thomas's question of we don't know the way where is the way but i think that is a little presumptuous to put the root there because the root of the triad is actually closer than that the way the truth and the life are rooted in what i am so it is unseparated triad because claiming the I am means that Christ is claiming deity the eternal existence so as the I am the attributes of Christ reveal the attributes of his aseity that's the blank aseity A S E I T Y his aseity that's that's the five dollar word for today this is God's isness that's that's the best way, and I'll get made front of. Them and say is, but that's that's the best language we have to to wrap our mind around the isness of God. And so, what this means is that Jesus is not one third way, one third truth, one third life, or seven percent vine, seven percent bread of life, seven percent way, truth, and life. He he is not comprised of parts. God is not comprised of parts. Everything about God describes everything about God. So. Yes, Christ is the way, but this way is a living way. It's the way of truth. They are all true in and of themselves, eternally coexisting, distinct, but not separate, in Christ, in himself, just as much as God is. So when we talk about, well, God is love, yes, but... His love is a holy love and a righteous love and a graceful love and merciful love. Everything else about God describes everything else about God. It's distinct but never separate because God doesn't have parts. You don't add up holiness, way, truth, life, light, bread to get God because that means you would have had to get those parts somewhere else. But it's, again, the parts are rooted, the parts, scare quotes, are rooted in the I am. These things eternally exist from the beginning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this unseparated triad is also rooted in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the psalmist prays that the Lord would teach him the divine way and to lead him to walk in, what, truth, Psalm 8611. The psalmist contemplates the path of life, Psalm 1611. So in the Old Testament, the psalmist, Jewish thought in general, and really <laughs> human thought from the beginning of a time, has wrestled with the ideas of truth, the way to God. We know that there is a God. How do you get to God? We know that God is there. Or what is truth or the problem that we have is death how do you get life how do you deal with this problem so from the beginning of time in the old testament jewish thought in general we wrestle with the idea of the way and and the jewish culture is specifically enthralled with that idea the idea of the way or the path or life and so the old testament points us to the fulfillment of god's way the fulfillment of God's way, truth, and life in Christ. So we ask the wrong question of what is truth. We really should be asking who is truth. So the answers that we have been looking for since the dawn of time, how do we get to God? What is truth? How do we deal with the problem of death is revealed to be fulfilled in Christ himself in Christ himself. So the primary thrust of revealing it this way, this I am statement is exclusivity. Exclusivity. The primary thrust of this I am statement is exclusivity because it's one thing to point to the way, but it's an entirely different claim to be the way. So this is this is elevating the exclusivity of Christ, That's the word again if you need it. So it's one thing to point to the way. It's another thing to be the way. It's one thing to say that this statement is true. It's an entirely different thing to say that I am truth itself. It's another thing to say this will help you live longer or this is how to live. It's another thing to be life in and of itself. This is the exclusivity of Christ. He is the way. And Christ's claim to be the way, truth, and life wholly excludes the possibility of pluralism and, and relativity. Pluralism and relativity as a worldview. Pluralism is simply the idea that God is at the top of the mountain and there are many trails that lead up the mountaintop, and at the top is God. And we just so happen to be on the Jesus trail. Or that there is one river leading to God, but there are many boats in this river that lead to God. That we're just in the Jesus boat, other people are, are in the Buddha boat, other people are in the secular boat, and things of that nature. So we must reject totally the idea of pluralism. pluralism. And the idea of relativity, meaning this is your truth, my truth. You hear this a lot today. Your truth, my truth. You do this your way, I'll do it my way. There's no the way. That's your life, this is my life. My truth, your truth. And of course, the answer is, is that true for you or is that true for me? Is it true for everybody? Because it's a truth claim. It's self-defeating. And Christianity, found in Christ, excludes us from any other type of way. This pluralist idea that there are many ways to God is crazy. For one, there's either no way to God, one way to God, or many ways to God. Those are your options. So if there is many ways to God, then Christ cannot be even a way because Christ claimed to be the way. So if he's wrong about being the way, then he is disqualified from being a way. But the problem is is that's a true statement, and truth is found in what? Christ. Himself, All riches of knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. The claim is exclusively Christ. So the final push towards exclusivity is found in 16b. 16b. So just in case we didn't understand it the first time, it furthers it by saying no one comes to the Father except through me. Through me is important. It doesn't say by me. It furthers the point that it's different to point to something than to be something. We don't come by truth, by Christ. Christ is truth. It is through Christ that we have these things, truth, life, and way. And the reason for Christ revealing himself as the eternal God who is the way, the truth, and the life is so that we may believe in him that we may believe in Christ. Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In verse 10, do you not believe? Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The whole point of revealing to the disciples that he is the great I am, who is the truth, the life, and the way, is so that you may believe Because without belief in Christ, you will never find life. You will never deal with that problem. You will never have truth. You will never be a part of truth. Truth will never have you. And you will have no way to the Father, no mediator between God and man. And this is found only in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for revealing your one and only begotten Son to us, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that you help us to move from unholy fear into bold belief in the one that you sent, in Christ himself, in God incarnate, fully God and fully man, who is our mediator to bridge the gap that sin created. I pray that you help us to trust in him only as we move throughout our week as we prepare for Easter. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 We'll see you next time